Hey, good afternoon. How are we? We got, I got one. I see you, Caleb. I see you. It's okay. I know it's cold. We're just not going to talk about it. Um, well, anyways, it's good to be with you. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'm Rashad, and I'm one of the pastors here. And, um, I get an opportunity to teach God's Word on most Sundays to this congregation here. And um, if you're new, I just hope that you feel welcomed and um, loved, and we're glad that you're here. Um, so we're going to continue in our series of Acts, and um, as if you weren't here in the beginning, we talked about this is Martin Luther Day, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and uh, we just we want to reiterate and be clear that we believe that the good news brings liberation and justice. That this is not liberation and justice is not a, a human construct because as we look at the scriptures, it says that God sits on the throne built on righteousness and justice. And it's the mission of God, we believe, to rescue and redeem humanity and that that mission is underway and that we are joining God in his mission to redeem and to reconcile all of humanity back to himself and to one another. Amen? Amen. And so um, I was sharing with the prayer group that I don't know what church background you come from or the history that you've experienced in the world, um, but once you see that God is a God of justice, that God is for the oppressed, that God lifts up those that are bowed down, you can't unsee it as you read scripture. And I hope today as we look in this passage, you go, this doesn't seem like a Martin Luther King um, kind of sermon or passage. And I'm just like, wait and see. And just <laughs> have, a, have a posture. I just say have a posture of openness for God to show you his heart for humanity. Amen. So we saw last week that um, Paul and Silas, they were, they, were, they were traversing through Asia Minor, and they're, and they're trying to preach the gospel, and God keeps telling them no, and God keeps redirecting them to different places, and um, they, they don't go where they want to go, and end up, they end up being directed where God wanted them to go. And so they're in, they're in Troas, and they have a dream and a vision, and God shows them a, a vision of someone from Macedonia saying, come, help us. And they gather together in community and they realize God has been redirecting them the whole time to get to Macedonia because he wants to do something there. And so we, how we ended last week, we said, Let the, may the wind of the Spirit be always at your back. And the wind of the Spirit is at their back directing the missionaries to where God wants them to go. The Spirit is moving, and that's where we find our young missionaries right now on the second missionary journey. The wind is at their back, and there's a map on on the website if you want to if you need if you need a visual learning to see like where where is all this? Where is Troas? I've never heard of it. Um, the wind is at their back. They're at Troas, and they immediately they set sail for Neapolis, is a port city in Macedonia, and so they have to cross the Aegean Sea. I'm hoping to cross the Aegean Sea this summer. Please, praise God. Come on, Lord, send us to Greece. <laughs> Anyways, come on, somebody. Aegean Sea sounds amazing right now. Anyways, back to the text. Um, they, they're, heading from, they're heading to Neapolis, the port city in Macedonia, and they have a favorable wind at their back. And they have a God's speed, and um, they stop in Samothrace um, the next day. And, I, and like, you can read this passage and go, okay, that's great, next detail. Um, but they make it there in one day, and then 
It says from there they make it to Neapolis the next day. And I just want you to, I'm not a sailor by any means, but they went 150 miles in two days. And I, I understand there's, there's no motor, there's no, there's not, it's just the wind and, and through maybe even torrential waters that God is sending them to this location in a rapid manner. And, if, and, he, and what makes it remarkable is if you look at a couple of chapters later in Acts 20, they leave from Philippi back to Troas and it takes five days. And so I think it's important to remember that there are times and seasons where God gets us to places faster and sometimes slower in other seasons. But our role is only to trust his timing and leading. Amen. I, I feel like almost every passage in here could be a sermon, so you have to, I, I got to keep going, but yes, amen. Like, there are seasons that God moves quickly. There are some times where God slows down. He's a, a strategic God who knows the times and the places where we need to be somewhere. And so they land in Neapolis, and they head directly for Philippi. And here's just a couple of things about Philippi. It's a leading city in Macedonia. It's an influential city, um, Roman colony. Um, put a, send a lot of their veterans there. So a lot of war veterans lived in Philippi. Thessalonica was Macedonia's capital, but Philippi's reputation was well-deserved because the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II, um, this city was named after him. So it's established as a commercial center. This city is Paul's first entrance of ministry into Europe. Um, and one, one commentator says this about Paul, that Paul doing ministry, bearing witness in Philippi is the closest thing he, to preaching in Rome. And so the point is, needless to say, that Paul has been invited into a very strategic mission into the heart of the world. And, and I believe as we look at these stories that there's a lot for us to learn, and here's one thing central that I think we need to learn as we look at these stories, is that changing the world starts where, right where you're at. Changing the world starts right where you're at, but only with a willingness to let God change your world first. Right? We're always looking somewhere else, and God's saying, well, I want to do something in you right here. I want to change you. And as I change you, then you will change the world in which I've placed you. Paul and Silas don't know what's in store for them. They're just following and trusting a God who longs to redeem humanity. And this, this story is kind of a, a microcosm, a motif, if you will, of what it's like to be on mission with God. And I want you to understand as we enter this, here's what happens that Paul and Silas are going to do ministry to the socially marginalized. Now, you might not read that passage and right away go, man, that's my takeaway. But read in verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath they went outside the city gate to the river. We were expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So this was Paul's practice when he came into a city. He went to where people were already worshiping. He, he went to places where people were already seeking the God of the Bible, were seeking, searching for Yahweh. And when he got to Philippi, there was no known synagogues in Philippi, probably for a number of reasons, and mainly because there was probably such a low amount of Jewish people in the region. And also, because of that, it, commentators say culturally foreign groups that lacked a critical mass were excluded from the city proper. 
So Paul and company, what do they do? They head to the outskirts. They head to the margins to find those who are trying to pursue God. And when no temple is established, the preferred location is near water. And so they head to the river to find the place of prayer. And so the place of prayer is simply this. It's a gathering place where the people of God come together and read and study the scriptures. And so these Jewish seekers of God, God-fearers, are on the outskirts of the city because they're not allowed to have a formal gathering in the city because they're a minority. They're on the outskirts of the city. Um, Paul discovers them. And when he discovers not only that they don't have an official place to worship in the city, he discovers that they're mostly women, maybe even all women. And here's what it says in, in rabbinic tradition, is that if there are not 10 men present in the community, then a synagogue cannot be formed or established. And so they, they can't be established as an official 501c3 in the city of Philippi because there's not enough men there. They can't get a work permit to build um, a, a, a synagogue and they can't even put up a tent and practice in their city if they go to the outskirts of their city um, because they're a, a cultural minority, the religious minority, and they're women. There's a lot going on here. And so it was the custom um, when a teacher entered a synagogue or a gathering, that they would invite this person to, to teach, and they often teach sitting down. They say, could you sit down and teach? <laughs> and so they offered, they, Paul was given an opportunity um, to teach. And so Paul begins to teach um, this gathering of women by the river, and he's teaching about Jesus and his kingdom. He might have told his story, we don't know, but what we do know is that a powerful encounter starts to take place. Verse 14, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, diller in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The words, the words uh, begin to pierce Lydia's heart. She's been seeking God, and probably for the first time in her life, she realized that God is now seeking her out. Though she's doing well financially, here's a good business. She's a, a dealer of purple, and I want you guys to understand that's a legal hustle, okay? She's not, she's not dealing purple out the side in the alley right here. <laughs> it's a legal hustle. She's, she's doing well. She's got a business, and she's, she's seeking God. She's trying to find out who this God is, and God lets, him know, lets her know that he sees her. And it says that the Lord opened her heart. This, this, this season, this moment, this is her time. That God opens her heart. The, heart's, the heart is important. The heart can be slow to believe. The heart can be antagonistic towards God until God reveals himself and opens the heart up. And this word opened right here, and when you think of a folding double door being opened all the way, that her heart is it's not cracked. It's not, she's not standing there with a the chain across the door saying, I don't know, God, but I want to let you in. The doors are fully open, and God is ministering to her heart. She's being seen, and she's realizing that God's real and that she matters. See, we can know about God but not go, know God. We can believe that God is real but not allow him to change our world. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to what? To respond opened her heart to respond. See, that your heart being open to the message of Jesus is a miracle of God in and of itself. 
That might be you today. You might be looking for God. You might be stuck in a rut. You might not be sure if this God stuff works. You might be coming in here and not vocalizing that you need a miracle. And I just say, why don't you ask God to open your heart? Lydia's response here changes her life and the world around her. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. On the spot, Lydia and her whole household were baptized. Death, burial, resurrection, raised to newness of life. The joy of the Lord is a banner over her. And she said, you have to come to my house. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And they're literally start Paul and company, they go to our house. They're literally starting a church in our house with a group of women who are not allowed to start a synagogue or push to the edges of society. Now God's missionaries in their house and they're being redeemed and sanctified and, and God is making all things new and they're becoming an outpost for his kingdom. Interesting note that Paul, who had been denied access to proclaim the gospel in Asia Minor, was redirected to Macedonia, and the first woman that he encounters and gets saved and baptized is a woman from Thyatira, which is one of the cities in Asia. What may seem has a haphazard route and journey um, full of God, re, re, his redirection in his nose and not yet might be the beginning of something great. It might, this is starting to look like a God story, that God is redeeming these would-be denials, that God is redeeming what these no's and these roadblocks. And he's doing more with your obedience than he could do, that you can do on your own. And this is just the beginning. It says in verse 16 that they were headed back to the place of prayer. And on their way of headed back to the place of prayer, they're confronted. It says, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. They're walking to the place of prayer and they're, and they're met. And, that, and I want, when you see that word met, I want you to understand they're confronted. And I want, I want you to see all throughout the scriptures as we live out God's way in the world, it will be contested. Like you can't just go to a new city and just and see a whole family and a whole city get baptized without being confronted by the power and the spirit of the age. They're met by a woman, and this is just not any woman. She, she had a, a spirit of divination. Literally means she had a spirit of python. And I was like, what does that mean? And this is not like mamba mentality like <laughs> like Kofi like not that like this is bad okay this is not good this is like this is not a good spirit that she has right now all right um, one commentator says this although a python itself would normally be a negative image Greeks viewed it positively in any context related to prophecy a spirit of pythonness would entail a spirit like the one that possessed that possessed pythia apollos oracle priestess and with what was considered highly reliable prophetic information and so this wasn't your run-of-the-mill psychic that you see at the strip mall this wasn't even dion warwick right <laughs> some of you remember that um Psychic friends. Anyway, um, this, is, this is like a, a powerful woman who was being used by the forces of darkness to actually tell people things about themselves and about the future. 
And so they are encountered, they are met by her. This is a confrontation. This is the powers of the world confronting and coming against the kingdom of God from breaking through in Philippi. And I don't know where you are on spiritual warfare and the demonic and those type of things, but we can all agree that there are realities, both seen and unseen, that resist goodness and justice. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. This is very similar to what happened in Jesus' ministry. Jesus would walk around, and all of a sudden crazy things would happen, crazy utterances. We know who you are. You know who you are. Put us in the pigs. You're like, what is going on? Literally, as Jesus enters earth, all hell breaks loose. All hell is breaking loose right here in the city of Philippi through this woman. They are, they're declaring what they're doing in an unwelcomed way because Jesus presence on the earth through his church is an eviction notice on the injustice and the corrupt systems of the world. And so she followed, she followed them while mocking incessantly. She's not trying to advance their message, she's trying to muddle it. So when you hear her say God most high, here's what N.T. Wright says, God most high to someone living in Philippi wouldn't have meant the God of Abraham, the one God of Jewish monotheism, it would have meant either Zeus or whoever people thought of as the top god in the local pantheon. I'm sure you've had experiences if you're a follower of Jesus where someone's mocked your beliefs, where someone's really challenged what you believe or what you stand up for in the workplace or in the locker room or at the water cooler. No one has a water cooler anymore. Anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like, you've had someone try to mock you and prove that you're a fraud or discredit or undermine your message. I don't know how many times someone has come up to me and said, Rashad, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I thought you were a pastor. I thought you were supposed to be like this. Right? And there's, there's something upsetting about how you live and how you interact that's upsetting to, to the world, to the way of the world, to the culture of the world. And so Paul, and this, and I want, this right here, what this woman was doing, it happened for days. So I'm sure Paul at this point is getting annoyed, and I'm sure Silas like, knows his buddy because they've been traveling for a while. He's like, man, Paul, don't take the bait. <laughs> don't take the bait, don't take the bait. Don't, go, don't, don't write that tweet, <laughs> right? Come on, somebody, be real. <laughs> you gotta have, everyone have a silence to tell you don't take the bait, right? Because it's tempting, right? Um, anyways, and finally, Paul responds, but from a posture of understanding the real problem. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Uh, at a glance, at, at a, just a peripheral reading, it would appear that Paul is attacking this woman, that he has a problem with her, but actually it's the opposite. He's angry with evil. Here this commentator says, Paul is angry at the state she is in and that her owners make so much money from her demon possession. In the end, he releases her in the name of Jesus Christ. 
See, this woman is a, is a slave. She's been a victim to the systems of the world that have kept her enslaved. And she could easily, Paul could easily just attacked her and over by, because of her brashness and rough edges. You, he could have redirected his, his, his annoyance at her, but he sees the bigger problem. She is twice bound spiritually, economically, and her masters are making quite a profit off exploiting her occult powers. So see, when we talk about race and gender and economic justice and reconciliation, we, we often can get fixed on, on one person or one personality and the someone who posted something or someone who said something at work or that family member at the table who's saying something ignorant or that pundit on TV or even someone in our small group. And for many of us, like the civil rights movement, we're really angry at evil. And this, is, and this is okay, but here's, where here's what the gospel calls us to, is how we respond. How we respond is what matters, because we are called to release the oppressed by the power of the Spirit, purely on, by the love of God. Check this out. Paul doesn't say in the name of Jesus, woman, shut up woman be canceled. He says, come out of her. Willie, Willie Jennings in his commentary on Acts says this, the point was not to silence her voice, but to release it from its networked captivity. Ministry in the name of Jesus Christ releases people to speak, especially poor women, by challenging the voices of their own oppression that constantly wish to speak through them. It's on the website if you need to like write that down. That's a lot, That's, I know. He's telling the oppressive force to be silent. Spirit of oppression, come off her. We have oppressive and unjust forces at work in our world that God is sending us out into the world to confront. Not be jerks, not be people that no one wants to be around, but to confront because of the loving kindness of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and set us free. That he, has sent, he sends us out into the world to confront these things. Dr. King would say, um, a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. Listen, the gospel is confrontational, but not like how the world confronts. Our aim is different. Our goal is different. Our means is different. We confront to see things transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus because we want to see the kingdom of God come to earth. Not our kingdom, not, our, not for us to look good, but for him to be exalted. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover his sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the mission of Jesus, freedom, redemption for those who are bound, poor, sick, exploited, marginalized, and oppressed. I want you to remember the vision that God gave Paul, come to Macedonia and help us. Listen, this is, this is why we're here. There, there are cries, there are people that are crying out, see me, hear me, I need help. What is the church's response to these cries? The ministry of Jesus is to free the oppressed, the, the minister to the poor. This is the ministry of Jesus. And again, once you see it, you can't unsee it.
But here's the thing. Freedom isn't free. Jesus gave his life. And here's what he calls us to do, to lay down our lives for the kingdom. When the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The heat's being turned up. To set someone free is never without cost. Here's my last point. When living out the way of Jesus, persecution is par for the course. Walter Wink says this, I cannot really be open to the call of God in a situation of oppression if the one thing I have excluded as an option is my own suffering and death. Listen, we have, we have the good news. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that God has placed within us. But the good news that we embody into our world is not always going to be met with receptivity. And the, the stakes are high when we're talking about eternity. And to change the world is not done casually, and it comes with a price. It's not just a fun idea. Hey, I'm just going to change the world. I mean, Jesus said you have to count the cost. To follow him, to see the world change, you might experience opposition. You might experience persecution. As we see here, not everyone is excited about her freedom. Not everyone is excited about the inbreaking of the kingdom as Paul and Silas are, found, are finding out. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. They're, I want you to understand this, that the first thing that they name in this is they call out their race and their ethnicity. These men are Jews. That, like, I want, you cannot miss that. They're, they're outsiders. They're ethnically different. Their lifestyle is different. Their theology is different. And, I want, and even when you look at who got arrested, who didn't get arrested, Timothy and Luke, one was half Gentile, one was Gentile. And this is, this is the Bible, okay? This is not Rashad making stuff up. These men are Jews. They're troublemakers. They're disturbing the peace. They're disturbing our way of life. They're upsetting the apple cart. They are anti-Roman. They're messing up our advancement of how we do things. One commentator says, says this, whenever the gospel threatens vested interests, especially economic interests, it is bound to meet opposition. We're almost done. Listen, to change the world, we have to be willing to let God change our world. We have to allow the gospel to threaten our own economic and social capital. Uh, I know for many of us, we're gonna, tomorrow we're going to get flooded with a bunch of quotes from Martin Luther King, and they're good quotes, we're gonna get, and we're going to feel the pressure to have to write something ourselves and say something and, like, and be like, oh, what am I doing? I need to do something. And, and this, is, this is a long-range thing that we need to do, that we need to work at, because this is, this is a Jesus idea, and he's behind it, and we want to be propelled by his win, but we also have to say, what am I willing to sacrifice? Man, I want to go in a different neighborhood. I want to be with people that are more like me. Well, maybe God's placed you there to be salt. 
Man, I want to go somewhere different. Listen, this cost to see the kingdom of God come, we have to lay down our rights. We have to lay down our preferences. We have to put different people around our table. And we have to be willing to, be, to step out, regardless of what public opinion, our families, or even people in our small groups think about it. All right, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> All right, last two verses. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in, their feet in the stocks. They are publicly stripped and beaten. And this is how the world confronts. They try to take the disciples' dignity and their voice by beating, by beating and imprisonment, public ridicule and shame. They are thrown into the inner cell, maximum security prison for, 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 for demonstrating goodness of the gospel to this woman. They're not given a trial. They, they break their own laws to put them in jail. Listen, the gospel has social implications for the world around us and has implications for our lives and our livelihood. Listen, there's a lot of work to be done in the world, and I'm not here to overwhelm you. I'm not over here to beat you down. What I want you to say is that there's work to be done, that we don't just gather here to hear a good talk and walk away and go, that was great, I did church. Like, we are here gathered to be the embodied presence of Jesus in the world to make a difference so that the world will save the churches in here. Like, man, we're, we're worse off without the church. And so I know that it can be overwhelming. It can be scary. For those of you that are doing work right now, it can be exhausting. It can be costly. But what I want to say is that it's worth it. John Lewis says this, John Lewis, civil rights activist, says this, do not get lost in the sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is a struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. I know this This it's, it's weird. It's interesting to end on a verse like this because it doesn't feel like the feel-good, happy-ending story but neither did the death of Jesus. This is not the end of the story. We serve a God who's bigger than Zeus, bigger than the gods of the pantheon who raised up Jesus' body and exerted it from the grave and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he holds the world together and he fills us with the Spirit. He says, go into the world because I'm going to change it because the kingdom of God is coming. So give notice to the systems and the brokenness of the world and let them know that there's a new king on the throne. God's presence and his spirit and the winds of his back are blowing us into the opposition of the world to contend for the kingdom of God. Church, this is our call. We pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, often challenging, often calling us out into places of discomfort, but we know it's in those places that you transform us. So we pray that we would be transformed. We pray that we would look like your church here in Boston, here in Massachusetts, here in New England, that you would give us an eye to see the cries of those who 
don't feel seen, who feel oppressed, who feel pressed on, who feel crushed. May we come in and be the kind of people who lift up, who see, who declare and bring your shalom to our world. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us, that you would challenge our own biases, that you would challenge our own lens and how we see your scripture and how we see the world. And we just say, Holy Spirit, come, we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.